know, one of the things I love about being a parent of young kids is surprising them with some adventures. What I do, I'm not sure if you do this or whatever, if you're in that same season of life, but there are times when rarely will we wake them up. We let them get as much sleep as their little bodies need. But they'll wake up and sometimes we'll say, hey, uh, we're gonna go on an adventure in like five minutes. So get changed, pack, some, pack your little backpack, throw some toys in there, get your water bottle, get some snacks or something, and, uh, and we're gonna go. And sometimes it's kind of simple, like literally just something down the street. Other times it's a little more elaborate in the mountains or whatever. And I love the whole, the whole day, but what I, what I love most, um, at least in those moments, is their expression because they're so excited. They, they find themselves flabbergasted that there's even something on the table versus whatever they were thinking was gonna happen that morning. And then we get to go do something as a family. And I love that uh, moment of, hey, we're gonna go, come on, let's go together. And then they're all excited about that and building that into their lives. Today we look at a passage that begins with this pronouncement to Jonah. Hey, go do this. And uh, we're not gonna get to the spicy stuff till later weeks, but we get to see what God does tell Jonah. So let's start off here in Jonah chapter one, the first two verses. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Arise and go, in verse two there. Those are two of the most famous instructions that God gives his people in scripture. If you were to track that phrase, you see it all over the place, from Abraham, back when his name was Abram, chapter 12 of Genesis, God says, go. Go to the land I'm gonna show you. To Moses, in Exodus three at the burning bush, God said, go to Egypt and go get my people. And to Joshua, in chapter one and two of the book of Joshua, God says, Moses is dead, arise and go. Go over the Jordan and take the land I've given you. To Gideon in Judges chapter six, verse 14, God said, get up out of that wine press, go save Israel, O mighty man of valor. To Elijah in 1 Kings 19, when Elijah was struggling in the cave, God said, get up out of this cave and go to the apostle in Acts chapter nine, Jesus told Saul, was part of his name, Saul and Paul, he told them, arise and go. In that same story, he tells Ananias, the prophet, arise and go to, go to Saul and go heal his blindness, because Saul was struck blind. The language is in, in nine verse 15, because Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Later in Paul's life, when he's retelling this testimony in Acts 22, he tells this part of the story. He says, Ananias said to me, why do you wait? Arise and be baptized now. On and on and on throughout scripture, we have these moments where there is a call to get up off of your tush and go. Arise and go. And it even is paralleled in other psalms and uh, statements like Isaiah 40, uh, verse 31. It says, but they who wait upon the Lord, he will renew their strength. They shall mount up on the wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. There's 
all sorts of verses along these lines of getting up and going. Arise and go. Friends, I know Jonah is, is uh, most well known for this giant fish that swallows the guy. But before we even get to that part of the story in future weeks, we find ourselves right now taking time, not just in this service, but throughout the week, reflecting on the statement, arise and go. Have you ever felt God's call to stand up? Have you ever felt God's call to go? How about this? What tends to hold you back from an absolute surrender to God? Whether that's salvation found in God or the sending of God. For many, it's fear. It's that fear of the unknown, the fear of something different, the fear that all that you've worked hard, that, uh, that, that serene equilibrium that you've created of your life, that God forces you out of that place in your family or, or your workplace or your routine, that it gets shaken up a bit. Perhaps it's, perhaps it's the fear of what it might cost you. You know, your heavenly father, he owns everything. He establishes your steps. And yet the thought of surrender feels like a great sacrifice. You can't control what happens. What is it that might hold you back from full surrender to the salvation of God and or the sending of God? Francis Chan said this about surrender. A key to everything is surrender. To really come before the Lord and say, I will literally stay here as long as you want me to stay, or God, I will really go anywhere on the earth. Jonah's story is personal to us throughout the whole book, but even this part of the story, because we are in many ways a Jonah. We hear and respond to God, and we have this war within us, the obedience to the Spirit versus the rebellion to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5 says this about the believer in, in um, verses 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Friends, in the flesh, uh, in our earthly bodies, we have this ongoing, daily, momentary war responding to the spirit or responding to the flesh. And then when God says, arise and go, you have that rush of emotion. Do we respond with obedience or not? One of the greatest promptings of the spirit that he charges us with as his people now, if you're a follower of Christ, not just religiously, I don't know, wearing a cross, but you know Jesus, he has saved you. One of the greatest promptings of the Spirit is to share and explain and teach and celebrate the greatest story of all. That's the story of salvation found in Jesus Christ and him alone. And it's the story of hope and healing and salvation. Yet even sharing that story, we tend to drag our feet with resistance. The greatest story. No problem sharing a story of the buck that you shot, but we struggle to share the story of God changing our lives. 
Jonah's story is naturally relatable because the commission that Jonah received is one that all of God's people receive. Mark 16, 15 puts it this way, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Go and tell. So Jonah's is arise and go, right? Go to the people of Nineveh. In our case, it's arise and go to the people God has put in front of us. Some of those we know, family members, coworkers, classmates. Some of them we have yet to meet. Most of us know that Jonah initially hesitates. Uh, like, I, he doesn't hesitate, he runs. <laughs> he runs the opposite direction and then God uses a giant fish to get his attention. We'll look at that here in upcoming weeks. But have you ever thought, what if Jonah didn't repent when he was in that fish? What if he didn't go? What would have been the consequences of his inaction? First of all, he'd become fish food, right? But also, the people of Nineveh, they would have never experienced God's mercy. And so let me uh, bring this to our lives. If we can be bold enough and honest enough to ask, what are the consequences of our inaction? Arise and go. Well, hey, we, we, can, we can dream what that looks like. What about the daily arise and go, and we say, ah, I don't want to. What are those consequences? I think there are personal and societal consequences that I wanna submit to you and allow, our, allow ourselves to really work through honestly before the Spirit stirring in our heart how bad it is when we daily find ourselves saying, uh-uh. And we, we uh, I'm getting ahead of myself with these future weeks here. But we, we dismiss our inaction because a giant fish doesn't swallow us. Like we just kind of live in inaction and we're like, oh, I guess it wasn't that bad. I mean, the fish didn't get me. So, uh, I guess this is okay. I guess God tolerates this moment. What are the consequences? Let me talk through some personal consequences and then also some societal ones. Personal ones, we can use the book of Revelation as a guide, as an example for us. Jesus gave instructions to these churches in chapters two and three. Well, in these instructions, we see these churches that didn't always walk in a way that honored the Lord. And this applies to us personally. One of the consequences of inaction to God's call is that your heart becomes fertile soil for weeds and thorns that choke out your joy and contentment and your love for the things that God loves. To the church of Ephesus, Jesus said this in chapter two, verse four, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Very similar is this phrase in 2 Timothy 3, 5. It says, you have the appearance of godliness, but you deny its power. Another outcome or consequence of inaction personally is spiritual dryness and sleepiness. You know, does, does your spiritual life feel like a desert or like a rainforest? Well, if it's a desert, and I'm not talking about God taking you through a, a waiting period or a desert period. I'm talking about repeated actions in which you are not cultivating the wondrous fruit of the spirit in your life and knowing God daily, reading his word. Instead, you tolerate dryness. 
Well, when that happens, you lose your purpose. You chase after earthly things that your heart knows will only fade away. And so to the church in Sardis, Jesus said this in Revelation 3, verse two, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. He goes on to say, your works are not complete or I'm not done with you yet. Another consequence is we become infested with idolatry and sexual sin specifically. You know, what was once intolerable becomes accepted and even celebrated. To the church in Pergamum, Jesus said this in chapter two, verse 16, repent or I'll war against you with the sword of my mouth. And there's a lot of language in that whole section uh, to Pergamum and to uh, Thyatira regarding this topic. Another consequence is that you lose your potency. You know, Jonah, he was spit out of the whale's mouth. But when we live this way, we are certified to be spit out of God's mouth because we grow lukewarm. To the church in Laodicea, Jesus said this in chapter three, verse 16 in Revelation. Because you are lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. And he goes on to say in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. So in summary, when you stop surrendering to God, either just a full cut and you just run the other way, or, or it's more likely, as I think about our church family, it's a slow fade. It's little decisions along the way tolerating little things along the way, slowly growing callous to the beautiful, joyous promptings of God. And when we do this, we cut off access to receive the blessings of walking in fellowship with God, the blessings of oneness with God. And friends, we wanna have spiritual vitality, not just survival, all right? So that's one consequence, all these personal outcomes. Um, But there's also societal outcomes. And again, I'm thinking about Jonah. If he didn't respond to God getting his attention, what would have happened with with Nineveh? Regarding societal consequences, our inaction can lead to neighbors and family members and friends and people groups and even nations who have never heard about the mercy of God. John 3, 16 says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Have you ever considered that your disobedience in this area is celebrated by Satan and his demons? John 8, 44, Jesus is just throwing down to the Pharisees and he says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and a father of lies. Have you ever considered that your disobedience to God's call to arise and go may actually delay God's miracles in the lives of people? Now, I say delay and not prevent because I, I don't think that if, uh, if you don't step up, it seems that God sends somebody else to do the, to do the work. And if uh, nobody steps up, uh, God will even send himself to go take care of business in our disobedience. And it's also not really sound theology to say that somebody else's damnation is um, our fault necessarily because there is that personal responsibility to their call 
and God's revelation to them. But, uh, but, so right, so don't send me an email about that. But what I am saying is like, like Jonah, we can be so self-centered and so consumed with our needs and our comfort, we can tolerate our disobedience and we can grow callous to the Father's discipline that we feel no liability for our inaction to the command, arise and go. So we get the call, we get the command, the instructions and the little things or the large things. And we're like, nah, I'm not doing that. And, uh, and we act like there's no consequence here. Whether it's our inaction of mercy to those who are hurting, our inaction of evangelism to those lost, our inaction of generosity to those in need, our inaction of love to those who are rejected, our inaction of speaking truth against lies, whatever it is. Friends, today's message for me and for you is one of repentance as we read this amazing commission, arise and go. We can personalize this and say, wow, I, uh, I don't always do that. You know, Jonah's story is quite fantastical. It's got sights and it's even got smells that no other Bible story has. And yet, before we get to the parts that I call a little crazy, here we have in verses one and two, this call, arise and go. And it's not limited to Jonah and it's not limited to other family members of our Christian heritage in scripture or the last 2,000 years of those who've been faithful. It is specifically for us and it's terrifyingly relatable when we are not obedient. 2 Timothy 1, verses nine and 10, it says this, it starts off uh, talking about God, either it says who saved us and called us or it says he saved us and called us, depending on your translation. God is the one who saves us and calls us to a holy calling, right? He saved us and called us. And it continues, to a holy calling. Not because of our works, not because you're good enough, not because you look good enough, not because you're smart enough, but because of his own purpose and his grace, which God gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. I'll keep reading in a moment, but as we looked at even last week, uh, it, it wasn't things that we did. There's, there's, a, there's a holy foolishness, right, that shames the wise. It continues, which now has been made manifest or manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Friends, God has saved us and he has called us to a holy calling. And I'm not even using creative language. That's literally reading from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Arise and go. Whether in the day-to-day or in the big moments of our life, let's not continue to read on in the rest of Jonah before we take a very serious spirit-led evaluation. How... Am I, am, am I like, how am I doing in that area? Arise and go. From conversations at lunch to raising support to live among an unreached people group. From being a faithful witness in your workplace 
to even a little bit more sacrificial, moving to a neighborhood or a mountain or a holler because there's no Christians there. They're like, someone's gotta be here and God's told us to move there. Years ago, Lynn and I, we were looking at some apartments in Standardsville, specifically just to be on a certain street. It didn't play out that way and we felt God give us the green light to get another spot. But God does that. Friends, are we living a life of faithful action or fearful inaction? Our God is ascending God. This is kind of what he does. He's commissioning all of us. Being sent requires obedience and faith. And so, wow, I didn't even realize where we're going here. We got so, I got a little bit more for you. But I don't care. Second service can just join us. <laughs> and I'll just pick up with the stuff they didn't hear yet. No, I'm not going that long. I'm kidding. As I think about this whole thing, you know, I, I recognize uh, for some of you, you've grown up in a family where, where you say this phrase, uh, your family name means something, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, I like that phrase. And I think it's true. Your family name, it means something. Uh, I've tried it. I've tried it. Our kids aren't really picking up on it, but I'm saying it just to kind of build that foundation and we'll see if the, it gets later. You know, comes comes along later. But I'm you know, like, hey, you uh, it feels it feels funny to tell you guys. I tell the kids like it's nothing, um, but I'll say something like, you know, you're you're a schwank, and that means something. And this is what we do. I'm usually using it in refer, referring to um, like loving in a very sacrificial way, something that's tough. I'm trying to build that into them. The reality is they should be doing it as a as a um, we're Christians, you know. But I, I, I'm taking it to even our family name. Just I don't know. I I like to do that. Well. You know, when you hear certain last names, we tend to associate it with something. Here locally, you got the Lamb Brothers. They make good furniture, right? Yoders, they know construction and sandwiches. Right? That's awesome. Locally here, we got our Kibblers. They produce fantastic athletes, right? Good stock there. In Midwest Illinois, if you don't know this, Schwanks, they grow corn, all right? That's probably why I like corn. That's what we do. Sometimes, hypothetically, I run scenarios about the family lineage here in town. I've gotten to know all of y'all over the years. And Greene County is well known for its large family trees. We've got Shiflets and Morris and Dean and Lamb and Roach and Crawford and Lawson and Collier and McMillan, Breeden and Garth and others. And a lot of those are all intermarried in one way or another, so <laughs> it's quite the thing. And I often wonder, hey, you know, if you heard that name, would you think, wow, those, those people love God? Like, is that the first thing that comes to mind? It doesn't tend to be here. And, and more than the furniture stuff and the sandwiches and the corn and all that, like, do, they love, do they love God? You know, that's, that's a family that walks with God. And that, and that the, the bountiful harvest 
of the patriarch or the matriarch of that family is that they have produced children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren who've not only known about God, but they have responded to that. And God has used them to magnify his name in all sorts of ways. Sure, some might be preachers and missionaries and stuff, um, but not everybody is. And so what, maybe they're Christian teachers and they have held the line with all this nonsense happening. Or they are Christian lawyers who aren't scoundrels but are wonderfully fighting for justice. Or they're Christian businessmen who aren't crooks in this town, but instead they are magnifying God. They're seeking to find ways to have a Christ-exalting business. Politicians who are actually ethical and not shady. Families who are fostering and adopting scores of children. Doctors who work in places like Kenya and others where there's need. On and on and on. I could name all the career paths. I'm I'm just gonna keep going. I think you get what I'm getting at. If there was this person or that family that loved God with their whole heart, how would their family and their kids have turned out and the trickle effect in that family tree and not just with that specific family, but in this town. I mean, it's kind of changed because a lot of people have moved here, including myself and others, where there's just like scattering. But I've just thought like hypothetically, like the last uh, 50 years, you can have some hollers that are kind of isolated to one family. Now more people have moved in and stuff. I'm driving up and down these, and none of them are screaming, these people know God. Once in a while you have somebody who does, but not the, not the, not the, the land upon like adjacent properties over and over again. It's not all those brothers, all those sisters. Wow, they just, they, they fought for the things of God. There's a whole bunch of other junk that is, tends to be the statements made about uh, these family trees. And so as I think about action and inaction, our action has consequences and our inaction has consequences and in part, the condition of our town is what it is because of the inaction of believers before us. The condition of our town and what will be said about the next generation is because of the action and inaction of us right now. So yeah, we may have walked into something, but what are we producing? What are we giving? What are we taking on? Take revival for an example here. Revival won't break out this year because our great-great-grandkids prayed for it. They're not even born yet. Revival will stir in our town because we interceded for it, where God hears our prayers because we decided to pray for 30 minutes rather than watching a TV show that was worthless, and we did the selfless work of our Christian duties day in and day out. Or take a vibrant church for an example here. A life-giving church family doesn't happen by accident. It's one that's built by a community of committed believers who choose to submit to scripture and follow the Holy Spirit. They love one another and they build a church with the subsequent generations in mind. Well, what will be said about Legacy Church? Who we are is because of our action or inaction day after day, building upon years, and then those years become decades. And our faithfulness to God, it will provide a marvelous harvest if we allow it. 
couple weeks ago, I was in Alaska on our mission trip working with our partners up there. And one thing I loved was watching how they celebrated their 75th anniversary as a church. They started in 1948. And so on their wall, they had all these pictures of, of their, some of their congregation moments and a whole list of all their pastors over the years. And, uh, you know, when you start counting 75 years, you're not looking at this one church service or even that one year. You look at a decade. You look at 50 years combined, what God has done over the course of this time. And those pastors and those churches saw after the things of God, and they built a church that established itself in this little town on the island. And it is what it is today because of the work of those who went before them. And, and most of those folks are not alive today. They understood their task and they were faithful to it. They were given the opportunity arise and go. And uh, from what I could see, and I was a benefactor being up there visiting, they walked faithfully. Well, friends, what if Jonah didn't arise and go? Those people may have died without knowing God's mercy. And what happens if we don't arise and go? Well, our neighbors and our family and our community and ultimately this world may die without knowing God's mercy. We are waiting on missionaries to tell our coworkers about the gospel, even though we're sitting right next to them. We're waiting on some dude from another country to tell our family member about Jesus, even though we see them today at lunch. We need to quit relying on the obedience of other Christians to lead the people around us to Christ. And we need to quit relying on the obedience of other Christians outside of our town to show mercy and love and compassion in Greene County and these surrounding counties. As long as God has his church here, we have work to do. Now, if we weren't here, that'd be different.